All right. Welcome, everyone. Tonight, we are going to study, continue our study in Christology. I plan on doing up till the week before Thanksgiving, we will be studying Christology. So this is where we're going to dwell for quite a while. Um, Last week, we talked about the most important and fundamental tenets of our study of Christology, and more importantly, I would say the most fundamental doctrine within our faith. And we saw this idea here, and it's pro- I'm probably going to remind us every week that we talk about Jesus Christ because it's so important, the fact that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be forever. So that boils down to the idea that Jesus Christ is 100% God, 100% man, resided in the person of Jesus Christ, and he will forevermore be that way. And last week we talked about the <clears throat> how this is so important, why it's so important, why it's our foundation. We looked at the Mormon church's doctrine on Jesus Christ to kind of give us, oh, this is what happens when we go off the rails with this, right? And so that's what we looked at in regards to the Mormon church. And tonight we're going to see how that plays out even more so, especially in regards to the humanity of Jesus Christ, which is what we're going to be focusing on tonight. Without this important statement and fundamental doctrine, our entire faith kind of just crumbles away. It doesn't work. Our salvation is good for nothing. It doesn't work. So we have to affirm this, and this has to be the cornerstone, the keystone, and the foundation piece. We also looked last week at the different heresies that particularly pertain to Jesus Christ. And uh, for those of you who want to delve into that, you can go back and listen to the podcast. And there is also a handout on there, or my notes are online, um, that have the heresies listed in there that you can look at. There's the notes and the PowerPoint or keynote presentation. We looked at the heresies mostly so that we can set our guardrails. You know, like when you bowl, you put up the safety lanes so you can, we don't veer off into the gutter or into some other lane, which is so most often the Christian cults veer off because they get one or more than one aspect of this study of Christology and this statement specifically wrong. Last week we looked at the heresies, like I said, and these early heresies in the church led to the definition of Chalcedon, which that was the handout last week I gave out that we've, we've looked at um, last time we studied theology and the hist- church history. And this creed, the definition of Chalcedon, which again is on our website, you can download it, sought to combat those heresies and set the bounds of Christology in specifically the person of Christ. So that's kind of just a sum up of where we went last week. And this week, we are going to begin our study with the person of Christ himself. We're going to get into some nitty-gritty stuff. This is going to begin with looking at the humanity of Christ specifically and the significance of his humanity. This is we're going to be dwelling on this for at least two weeks, probably three or four, because there's a lot 
to unpack with the humanity of Christ, why it's important. So the questions that we're going to ask in regards to the humanity of Christ is what does the fully man part of this doctrine, right there, he was fully God and fully man in one person, what does that fully man part actually mean? And the follow-up question to that, why is it so important that he was fully man? Why couldn't he have just been fully God? So, for that, for t- in order to answer that question fully, in order to answer that question in its completeness, <clears throat> we must begin looking at the virgin birth. Okay? So that's where we're going to spend some time tonight, is looking at the significance and the importance of the virgin birth. So, one point to make clear. There really is no valid arguments against the virgin birth, if you take Scripture seriously. If you don't take Scripture seriously, the virgin birth can be, you know, up in the air. But if you take God seriously, if you take Scripture seriously... Scripture speaks at great length about the virgin birth. It's taken as a fact. It's shown to be something that happened and happened in actuality. And Scripture assumes that we believe that this took place. There's a myriad of Scriptures, all of the Gospels that record the birth of Jesus, look at and describe this virgin birth. The first one we're going to look at, and you can turn with me, is in Matthew 1.18. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that is kind of the introductory phrasing, because he clarifies it a little bit later in Matthew. And I'm going to fill in the gap in between 18 and 20 by reading 19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So that implies a couple things. First of all, it implies that he had not actually been with her because if if she was pregnant and they had consummated the marriage, there's no reason for him to divorce her, right? So we can take it up. Whoops, sorry. In fact, that he indeed had not been with Mary. So, what? So he was going to do the right thing, put her aside quietly, and nobody was going to know about it, and it was going to be just a quiet, put her away. However, in verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for you will save the people from their sins. All right. 
and I'm going to continue reading. It's not listed on this, but I'm just going to continue reading because it's important. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right. So we have here a description of what happened. Mary and Joseph are betrothed to be married. They haven't consummated the marriage yet because that happens at a later point in the marriage ceremony. I think uh, the, does the film that you talked about last week talk about that at all? Kind of the betrothal period? Oh, yeah. Yeah, where you have, you have an engagement ceremony and it is quite the ceremony. It's not just you just kneel down. It's a, it's a full ceremony between um, mostly between the two fathers, the father of the bride and the father of the groom. They exchange dowries. They exchange um, and uh, what is the word I am blanking on? It's, it's a dowry, yeah. They exchange kind of goods and they trade things. There can be any number of things involved in that. There can be goats, cattle, etc., money, wealth, um, and there's also wine involved. You said a cup of wine, and they take it, all those different types of things. There's, a, there's great ceremony and pomp and circumstance in the engagement ceremony or the betrothal ceremony. And in Jewish culture, once you are betrothed, as we see in Matthew, you are considered married. You are set apart for that person. You are signed and sealed, but you are not yet delivered. Um, really, that's... That comes into play, signed, sealed, delivered. That's exactly what's going on. You are signed, you have been sealed, but you are not yet delivered. The deliverance comes on the wedding day itself, and that is where, actually, you'd be signed, and then you're sealed on the wedding day, and then delivered with consummation, which that is how the ceremony takes place. Just like when you have a house, or go to buy a house, you sign the papers, you have to wait in escrow, then when escrow comes, you get the keys, you sign away, it's sealed by the clerk recorder, and then you get delivered the keys and you get to go walk in your house, right? Same process, it's a very similar process to uh, what was going on at the time. <clears throat> and the big party would happen at that sealing process at the process where vows were exchanged and the rings and all those different types of things to seal the wedding, seal the marriage. But for all intents and purposes, they were married. That's how the Jewish culture worked. It wasn't something that could be broken. It wasn't something that could be altered or exchanged. The contract had already been written and signed. <clears throat> so, Joseph obviously was very disappointed and would have been shamed for his spouse to who they had not yet delivered, they hadn't yet consummated the marriage. Everyone would have known that they were married because there would have been a big party with the whole town and she's pregnant. So lots of shame would have come upon him and his house 
if he followed through with the marriage. So what he would have done is he would have put Mary away and then nobody would have heard from her again and that would have been that. No shame on his house. But Joseph ended up marrying Mary despite the fact that she was pregnant. So one thing that gets missed a lot in the virgin birth story is the fact that Joseph, for the rest of his life, had to live with a great shame upon his name and upon his house. So from this point forward, the house of Joseph was a shamed house, which was a big deal in the ancient culture. He would not have been able to participate in certain things. Um, it, it, was, it was like... Um, if you've read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, it was very similar to that, where they would have had something almost like a big red A plastered on their chest, like, hey, we've sinned. So that's, uh, it's a big deal that Joseph went through and followed the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so that's Matthew's account. John obviously does not have an account of the virgin birth because John writes from a more heavenly perspective, and it's just, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then the Word became flesh. That's um, his account, which we'll talk a lot more about that account a little bit later. And then we have Luke's account, and Luke's account is probably the most in-depth. This is in Luke 1. <clears throat> and I have on here Luke one thirty five, but we're going to go back to uh, Luke one twenty six to tell the story. Luke one twenty six. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your... And then he's talking about Elizabeth and how Elizabeth um, is pregnant with John, John the Baptist. So we have the virgin birth. It is clearly depicted in Scripture as the origin of Jesus Christ. There is nothing debatable about that. But why is it so important? That's what we have to look at. So we're going to look at three main reasons why the virgin birth is significant to our Christian theology. What, three big reasons. The first reason is that the virgin birth shows us that salvation can only come from God himself. So in the conception of Jesus Christ, 
The will of man is not involved in any way. You just read both of those stories. Does Mary have any real choice in the matter? Any willful action happening on her part? No. There's no willful action. There's no... um, There's nothing on the part of man that is happening. Every other human being has been conceived through the will of man, however. So that's obviously not in play here. So man, in turn, is not able to will salvation upon himself. The redemption of the world cannot come and does not come through the power of man or any form of human effort. Man, obviously, we know this through uh, Paul's theology and also Jesus's. The redemption of the world can't come through man. Man is not good enough to save himself. We are all under that curse of sin, which we're going to talk about next. But God is the one who must intervene on our behalf. Our salvation is a supernatural work of God. And furthermore, it is initiated by God alone, not by man. Paul highlights this. He highlights this in almost all of his letters. But one specific place is in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. If Jesus would have been born of traditional means, then the will of man would have been involved in the act of salvation, which ultimately would have corrupted it and made ultimately salvation impossible. Now, an interesting concept here that um, Paul talks a lot about, especially in Romans and in other of his letters is what other human being, what other man was brought forth by the will of God alone? Well, it was Adam. So Adam was also brought forth by the will of God alone, and Jesus was brought forth by the will of God alone. Obviously, Adam failed, the first Adam. Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded. So we have some parallelism here going on. Not that uh, the virgin birth isn't much more spectacular than Adam because it is much more spectacular than the creation of Adam. But the idea of using, and this is totally a side note, this isn't one of the big three, you have Adam being conceived by the will of God and Jesus being conceived by the will of God. So they're parallel storylines kind of, which you see that throughout the Gospels. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, we go to, this is in Luke 1, it starts in 13, Luke 1, 13, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it so we can talk about it. But the angel said to him, Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth." For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that's the Nazarite vow, even from his mother's womb. 
and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom, or to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to this angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. People were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months... So, he was given the proclamation, and then the conception happened after the proclamation. Okay? So that's the timeline. So, the hard part with Scripture is we... Yes, one, we believe that Scripture is historical. We believe that everything in Scripture is inerrant. That is our belief system. means it's true, the way it was written out. However... This was written in ancient Greek, right? And translated into English. So some things get lost in translation, right? And, and, uh, and that's okay. Um, so yes, we either take this to be, we know that they were pregnant at the same time because of a later account when Mary met Elizabeth, what happened? The baby leaped in her womb, right? So we know that they were pregnant at the same time. So there's some overlap um, but whether it was five months or six months or whatever the case may be, but they're, 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 they're closely related and they came, we know that he had to be before because of the spirit of Elijah paving the way for Jesus. But other than that, uh, while it's important, it's not, um, yeah, that can, I, I would say that could be taken one of two ways, either the six month of Elizabeth's pregnancy or the six months of the, the Hebrew year. Either one would fit, I believe. We just know that they were pregnant at the same time. And there is a very clear delineation here in Luke because what's it say? Elizabeth conceived, not the Holy Spirit came upon. It's, it's very clearly one by the will of man, one by the will of God, and that's okay. That's good because obviously this is the only, the virgin birth is the only time this has ever happened in history. You know, that's one thing we do have to affirm. This is the only time this has happened. It won't happen again. It never has happened. That's what makes it unique. That's what makes it miraculous. <clears throat> so, the second idea here. The virgin birth unites God and man within the person of Christ. So the second reason the virgin birth is so crucial to our Christology, to our theology of Jesus, is it makes possible the uniting of God and man. Now this one is more of a thought experiment than anything with hard evidence in Scripture, and you'll, you'll see why in a, in a moment. But this unique supernatural event perfectly shows us how God and man are united and fully present in one person. Now, one thing I want to talk about in regards to Scripture, and this is definitely a veer-off, is we as Western Americans specifically tend to be very utilitarian in our 
thought processes, and in our theology. What I mean by that is we want everything to have a use, we want everything to have a purpose, and things need to be logical and things need to fit, which Scripture is very logical and it fits together beautifully. However, one aspect we tend to miss a lot is the beauty and the pictures that God puts forth in Scripture. And this is one of those things. Is there actual utility to the virgin birth? Yes, there is utility to the virgin birth. But one other very important aspect is the beauty and the picture that's presented within the virgin birth. Meaning that you have literally a concept where God and man are coming together to form a new being. Kind of, that's probably heretical, that statement, a new being. (laughs) But to form the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so you have this wonderful picture of kind of togetherness. Whereas if you just had man and man, if God had made Jesus a complete man in heaven and sent him out upon the earth, kind of like Superman, you know, he just appears and we just receive him, Um, it would have been really hard for us to see our humanity within Jesus Christ. And on the flip side, if he had two human parents and he just becomes Jesus or something like that or becomes the Christ, we wouldn't be able to see his deity. So we have both playing at the same time in the virgin birth, because you have the Holy Spirit and Mary involved in the equation. So Jesus was indeed born just like us. We have that in common. But instead of an earthly father, he had a heavenly father. Thus God and man were united in the person of Christ, creating both an effective and beautiful picture of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man and one person and will be forever. So he's going to be that way forever. So all these things we're speaking about are true of him forevermore, not just when he was on the earth. So the next part, and this part is kind of more of a technical part, but again delves into that beauty aspect of Jesus Christ. The third reason that the virgin birth is crucial is that it makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Now, I've done you all a little disservice because I've skipped the part, I've more just taken these out of order, where we talk about, I'm talking about the theology of man, we, we haven't done the theology of man yet, talking about the idea of inherited or original sin. Original sin is that idea that all humanity is born with a curse of sin. And we have inherited, inherited from Adam, our father, legal guilt and a corrupted moral nature. Legal guilt and a moral corruption, a corrupted nature from Adam. What that means is that from the day we're born, we are legally guilty of sin, of breaking the covenant, breaking the promise with God. The other thing is we have a moral corruption within our hearts that causes us to want to sin, that causes us to want to do the wrong thing. Paul does a great uh, treatment of this in the book of Romans. 
The whole book is basically about this, where it says, all have perished, all have fallen short, we are all guilty of sin. Now, the important part here that we need to understand, I've seen a lot of teachers, and I was initially taught this about the virgin birth. The virgin birth does not solve the problem of inherited sin perfectly. We're going to discuss that in a moment. It just provides a clear picture of why Jesus is different than us in having inherited sin from Adam. Why I say it doesn't um, solve the problem perfectly is nowhere in Scripture you have to do heavy inference from these passages about the virgin birth, those ones we just read. That's the only ones about sin being transmitted through the Father. Okay, so one uh, treatment on this would be to say, okay, based on this idea of the virgin birth, the sin of mankind, original sin, only passes through the father. So the mother does not give you original sin. That has a lot of logical fallacies. It doesn't really work, especially, like, it just, and we don't have anything other than those verses we just read about that. Like, we have to have some heavy inference here, which we're not about that. We want concrete evidence. We want truth and reality. We're not going to you know, create an entire theology based off of one word, which you literally would have to be creating an entire theology based off of one word. Um, this notion, though, of him being separated because he was born of a virgin is uh, presented in Luke one thirty-five, which you just read that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Gabriel declares to Mary that because the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work, he will be holy, meaning set apart, meaning different from everything else. The connection being made is Holy Spirit and the will of Holy Spirit versus the will of man, and he's going to be called holy because of that. Now, we talked about the alleviating sin parts. Um, this is, I believe, that what alleviates or why Jesus did not inherit sin is not because sin is passed through the Father, but primarily because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the big, the big catalyst here, where we obviously are not. <clears throat> so, why did Jesus not inherit a sinful nature from Mary? Why did Jesus not inherit a sinful nature from Mary? Now, this is where the, one of the primary places outside of church governance that the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, and the Protestant church uh, veers off, it's specifically the modern Protestant church, because uh, some of the Lutherans and others have similar theology. So... No, there's no evidence in Scripture outside of that passage we just read that our sin is inherited from the father, not the mother. So what about Mary? The Roman Catholic Church answers this question by asserting that Mary was without sin and totally poor, pure. Pure, not poor, pure. Their uh, dogma on this, their theology on this is that... Um, 
<clears throat> there's something called immaculate conception. We'll talk about that in a minute. I believe that this scripture is not sufficient, or that this answer about Mary herself being free from sin is not sufficient because scripture doesn't really teach this. It's a logical fallacy. If Mary was without sin, then how did she not inherit sin from her mother and father? Okay, so it's kind of just punting the ball back and back, and, and it's like, well, that doesn't really make sense. And if one person's going to be born without sin, why would it be Mary? Why wouldn't it just be Jesus? That makes a lot more sense. So it's important to understand why the Catholic Church holds to this dogma. It's called immaculate conception. If you ever see the word immaculate conception, that uh, theology and that idea does not refer to the conception of Jesus within the Roman Church, but rather the conception of Mary being conceived purely within her mother's womb. So the Roman Church believes that Mary herself was conceived in her mother's womb, free from sin, and that her life was free from sin in every way. One of the reasons that they hold to this belief system is that the New Testament does indeed give honor to Mary, specifically in Luke 1, verse 30, the angel Gabriel calls her favored one. You have found favor with God in Luke 1, 30. And in Luke 1.28, he says that. He came, greetings, O favored one. That's in Luke 1.28. So they tend to take that and mean something that is not necessarily what that word actually means, uh, especially because Paul uses that same word, the same Greek word, which that word is, why did I not write this down? Yeah. A long word, anyways. <laughs> but that word in Ephesians 1 6, Paul uses it to describe his fellow believers. In Ephesians 1 6, it's a little different translation here, but it's the same Greek word. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So that blessed us in the beloved is taught is the same Greek word used to describe Mary. So it's someone who's found favor with God, but isn't necessarily a unique individual in Scripture, as many of Jesus' titles are unique to himself. So that's kind of where the Roman church gets their belief on this. Um, as I said, it kind of creates a logical fallacy, which is why a lot of Protestant theology tends to shy away from it, tends to not put Mary in something of a deific role. <clears throat> we do not believe that Mary was sinless. We believe that the great miracle wasn't Mary, but Jesus himself. And the best way I would answer this question is to say that the work of the Holy Spirit in the equation, not necessarily Mary, is what made Jesus holy and stopped the inheritance and transmission of the sin nature. Why attribute something to Mary when the clear mover and willer in the equation is the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> and furthermore, one of the other big problems is this Catholic doctrine of immaculate conception kind of flies in the face of the whole point of Jesus being this unique 
transcendent character in the universe. Salvation comes from God alone, so Mary being sinless actually, I believe, takes away from that idea, if that makes sense. So part of, part of what you're saying is correct, and part of what you're saying um, is slightly problematic. Now, we believe, and, um, and this... We, and this is why I said it's, I've done a disservice because we haven't talked about sin yet. Uh, sin, we believe, and like I said, there's, there's a big chunk of book for this. But sin, what our stance on sin and what I believe Scripture teaches is, one, sin is a willful act of a human being or of a person. Sin is a willful act of a person that disobeys a law of God. Okay, That is one aspect of sin. But the other aspect of sin is we believe that when Adam sinned, not only was he just being selfish, a willful act, but because of that, his soul, his spirit, was corrupted for all mankind. Okay? So we are um, tripart. We believe that we are tripart people. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. That's what we, that's what at least we here at the salt mine and our staff believes. You have a body, you have a soul. The soul is what makes you you. Your body is your flesh, right? And your spirit is dead when you are born, is what we believe. Now, one caveat to that is we also believe in something that we like to call the age of accountability, which means that God is not going to be unjust and punish those who have not committed sin or understand what sin is, right? So baby that dies, those who have been aborted, those types of things, those are all going to heaven in our theology. And I genuinely believe that's God being just because God is a just God. However, that baby still has a heart that is dead. And this, a lot of this comes from Paul's teaching uh, where it says there's a lot of being born in our trespasses um, and and being dead, he, Paul talks about it like we enter this earth with a sort of z- a zombie around us, the dead man. That's why we must be born again into life. We are born into death, and we must be born into life. That's why we're born again. That's what Jesus teaches in John, and Paul clarifies in Romans. So while, yes, sin is primarily a willful act of a person, which is exactly what you are describing, a willful act of selfishness, a willful act breaking the law of God, we must also contend with a corrupted moral nature, a twisted heart that must be redeemed. Does that help you a little bit? Yeah, and like I said, there is a deep, deep theology here. There's deep study that we will eventually get into. (laughs) But for now, it's important to understand that yes, the Immaculate Conception, the fact that he, and we're going to talk about the potentiality for sin, that is a good question because that is a hotly debated topic in regards to Jesus, whether he had the potential to sin or not. I believe that he did not have the potential to sin in any way, shape, or form. He was tempted to sin, but he did not have the potential to sin, and we'll talk about that next week because it's a hefty study, but it's important for us to understand that. We believe that all have sinned. Paul makes that clear. All have sinned. So one being exempted, Mary, doesn't really fit in the whole Bible picture. 
Well, Mary was great. I don't think there is... Yeah, yeah, she was the one, Mary was the one that was chosen by God, just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David were all chosen by God. Are we going to, well, we can boo-hoo them. David was an awful person. Abraham was an awful person when you looked at the body of work, but God chose them, and they were made righteous because God chose them, and um, that's an important theology to talk about as well. Yes, exactly right. We have the ancestors listed, which I didn't even get into that. There's some, I'm not going to say conspiracy theory stuff because it's not conspiracy theory. There's a reason why it's there. But there's some nitpicky stuff in terms of why certain people were listed and why certain people were not in regards to the ancestries in, in uh, Luke and in Matthew in terms of the, uh, the fathers, which ones were included. Uh, Matthew and Luke leave out some. They include certain ones. There's curses placed upon certain lines of the family and promises on other lines. And so some of the, like one of the ones, there's, there's the king called Jeconiah who had a curse put on him by God. It says, no one in your house will ever sit on the throne. And he happened to be one of David's descendants. And the fact that uh, Joseph was actually the direct descendant of David, where Mary was kind of an offshoot of David's house. And so the fact that he got both, but he didn't have Joseph's blood, which Joseph's blood was cursed by God from Jeconiah, he got the right of being a king without having the cursed blood of Jeconiah. So there's, there's some fun things there, which I didn't get into because it would take all night to go through all of them. But... Yeah, we're talking mostly about the theology, kind of the big picture why um, this happened. Now, the next part I think is very important and probably the most important part of him having humanity and humanness is that Jesus had weakness and Jesus had limitations. He was not a superhero in disguise. So the way that we looked at the Mormon church, how they wrote about Jesus is he had all this weight of glory and superpowers and he was kind of just holding it all in, which kind of is, it reminded me when I read it of like Clark Kent walking around in his glasses like, oh, I'm Superman, but I can't just go punch that wall because then it would reveal, and no, that's not how Jesus was. He was not just a superhero in disguise. He was not just God with a bag of skin on him, right? He was fully man, and with that, he had mannish weaknesses and limitations. He did not have a hybrid body, so it's not like when Jesus got tired, he could be like, oh, I'm going to pump up some of my godness and get strong again. That's not what he had, you know, all the ailments and maladies that we as humans have, he had as well. That's one of the ways. There's another way um, that I believe he understands us. Um, and this way is more my own, my own theology on it. I haven't heard a lot of teaching on it, but one of the ways you talk about the way he understands us. So yes, he was a human, but also I believe at that moment, take this with a grain of salt, please. This is more of a mystic ideology, mystic meaning 
Not, it's not fantasy, but it's, it's a little more emotional when you think about it. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, I believe that not only did he take the full weight, and when he took the full weight and burden of our sin, I don't think he was just taking it on to pay for it, but I think he was taking on the full weight and burden of our sin so he would have experienced what it was like to sin. That's what I believe. I think that makes it like way more big than just him just, oh, I'm paying for that, I'm paying for that, I'm paying for that. I think he experienced the full weight of those sin, which leads to some very interesting conversations. Jesus understands what it's like to murder somebody. Jesus understands what it's like to rape. He understands what it's like to commit those sins because he paid for it. And the reason why I think that is because I think in order for him to truly pay for our sins and be that high priest who's experienced all, he would have had to experience all. That makes um, that sacrifice a lot more potent, I believe, as well in terms of how he relates to us. Yes, exactly. The aloneness of God turning away, all those things. So with that, with that also specifically, we're going to look at specifically the places in Scripture that make, that show Jesus' weaknesses, his limitations, and his mannishness. First one is in Luke 2, 7. We have Jesus being born. Obviously, he was born. But with that, he was born. He wasn't just, he didn't just appear on the scene. He was born. He had that aspect happen to him, just like we have been born. He grew up in Luke 2.40. says the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Keep that verse in your mind because we're going to look at what that actually entails when we talk about the mind of Jesus being a human mind. Jesus became tired in John 4.6. Interesting thing, a lot of these are in John, which John paints Jesus as this deific God person, and yet all, a lot of these are from John. <laughs> He's tired and weak. John 4.6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth journey. He was weary. He was tired. He becomes thirsty. In John 19, 28, this is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And a lot of these are just statements, but they're important. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus became Hungry. We have this in Matthew 4 2. This is right after the temptation. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. These obviously, the reason why these seem like everyday attributes to us, like, oh yeah, I'm tired every day, I'm thirsty every day, I'm hungry every day. But God is never these. God never thirsts, he is never weak, he is never hungry because he is fully sustained within himself all the time. So these are kind of really big points. Just the fact that these are listed should tell us, oh, he was a man. Jesus became physically weak in Matthew 4, 11. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The fact that he had to be ministered to means that he was not able to take care of himself. Notice also, he didn't minister to himself. Angels came to minister to him, which is not an unusual thing. That has happened in Scripture several times, where God provides something external to, for his prophet, for his people. Manna from heaven being the most glaring one. So it doesn't like take him out of the equation because angels provided for him. And then furthermore, in Luke 23, 46, and in all the Gospels, we see Jesus dying. His physical body ceased to have life to the point where his body ceased to function. Luke 23, 46, his physical body ceased to function, meaning he was a man with weaknesses and limitations. He couldn't just push through the torture of the cross. Now, we say that, however, his resurrected body was very different. It was still a fleshly body, but it was made perfect. It was not subject to weakness, disease, or death. However, Jesus still ate. Um, another thing, he had physical form. He was not a ghost or a spirit. We see that in kind of the descriptions. I'm not going to go through all of them because there's quite a few, but he gets there and he says, hey, make me some fish. And he eats some fish and he eats with the travelers on the road to Emmaus, the disciples there. Um, but one really important fact, and this is the, the point that Linda was making at the beginning, was how we're going to relate to Jesus when we get to heaven. And that's Jesus has the same body now that he had back then. It is the same resurrected body. In Luke 24... 50 and 51, <clears throat> we have the description of the ascension of Jesus. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And then we have another description of this in Acts 1 9. Acts 1 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. This one is the one that gets a little bit more um, tricky for us to wrap our heads around. Jesus had a human body. That's a little easier for us to understand. But Jesus having a human mind can be a little bit hard for us to wrap our heads around, I believe. Jesus had a human mind. This is important as well because sometimes we think that Jesus had have bodily limitations, but in his mind, he's still all-knowing God. Well, we have a problem there because in Luke 2.52, which we read earlier, Jesus increased in wisdom as he grew. Can God increase in wisdom? No, God cannot grow, God cannot change, God cannot learn. So the fact that Jesus did any of these things shows us that he had a human mind. This is where the paradox of the God-man starts to really get nitty-gritty because it's like, wait a second, so what does that mean for all of this? And when you start to look at some of the scriptures, some of it starts to make a little bit more sense, especially um, one that Wayne Gruden points out is 
when he says, no one knows the hour, not even the Son of God, only the Father. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. He has the, the, you know, but even still, he's still fully God. He did not have all the knowledge of the universe crammed into a human mind, okay? He was fully man in his mind, but he still had the mind of God as well, Um, when Jesus talks about doing things the Father tells him, he's relying fully on the Holy Spirit, relying fully on God for everything. Yeah, but we're not fully God either. No. Yeah, that's that's the tricky but. part. <laughs> well, I also believe as much as he didn't have the mind of God, I believe he was not unaware of who he was. So he, and I believe that he truly did have, um, as much as he didn't have the all-knowing part of it, he would have had a lot of knowledge. So I think he was limited, but not, he he didn't start with a blank slate kind of thing. Um, He would have had to know the plans of God. He would have had to know what God was up to because he was born. He was in existence, right? A question was asked, um, how did Jesus as a 12-year-old have all this knowledge and understanding of Scripture, the prophets, and the, the Pharisees and teachers were marveling at him, right? So how did he have all that and not have the, the full mind, you know, the all-knowingness of God? And what Eric pointed out, and it's very true, is he did not have a sin nature to translate it through. He was perfect his mind, therefore, was perfect. Our minds are broken, right? Our minds are twisted, they're corrupted, they're full of um, physical ailments, chemical imbalances, all those things are corrupted because we live in a state of entropy. He did not. He was not that way as far as his, because his, he was, had a perfect mind that was not subject to the curse of sin. He was subject to pain and suffering and those things, but... Yeah, Mackenzie, do you have a question? Yeah, it's like Adam. That's a good point. So Jesus was born as Adam was born. Adam, we know, had great mental acuity. He was able to name all the animals. He was able to reign over the earth, well, right? Doesn't even science tell us that we only use what? Yeah, exactly. Science even, well, yeah, that's... I mean, it could be like, that could be goofy, but... Yeah. I mean, we do too. It's just not all at the same time. (laughs) So he would understand his writings. The other thing, I mean, and this just goes right back to, um, so the, the scriptures were written to mankind. So they were written from a perspective, they weren't written with the thought that you have to be a biblical scholar to understand them. They were written so that everybody could understand them, even the Hebrew scriptures, right? And so Jesus, without the weight of sin and the curse of sin, I'm assuming it would have been like, well, duh, it's right there. Why can't you see it? Without all that snark, because Jesus wasn't snarky. (laughs) Not like that. (laughs) That's true. You're right. Okay. There we go. We have confirmation. Snarkiness is not a sin. <laughs> Where's Chris at? <laughs> no, don't let her hear that. 
Um, yeah, but also with the, with the renewed mind, you know, without the idea, just, just even practically, you know, what do kids want to do? They want to do stuff that benefits themselves. Well, if you remove the selfishness out of it, wow, you've got quite the blank slate of knowledge of God. So there's, there's a lot to it, but yeah, um, we believe in the, the big picture, like I was talking, body, soul, spirit, so that spirit part that's died is the part that communes with God because God is spirit. We don't have that when we're born. It's dead. We have to be born again, and the Holy Spirit comes and resides in there, and that's how we can enter into the presence of God. Jesus was totally pure. He had his spirit alive. So he was able to fully communicate with God all the time, like Adam. He walked and talked with him all the time. So yeah, he would have had full access to God 100% of the time, or full access to the Father. Sorry, correct my ideas, my language and verbiage there. So Another big point that we need to understand is that Jesus had a human soul and human emotions. I'm not going to go through all these scriptures because we're just about out of time, but they're all here for you to, to read. Jesus and his soul was able to be troubled. His soul was able to be troubled. That word troubled there is, um, is an important word for us to understand. It's not just troubled like, oh, I'm thinking about this. That word trouble is the Greek word tarasso, which implies anxiousness and being surprised by danger. So it's something that's, you learn something new and you're troubled by it, which obviously God does not have that. When we talked about the attributes of God, none of these fit with God. God isn't any of these. I mean, he has emotion, but it's, it's different. Um, God cannot learn. God cannot be tempted. That's in James 1.13. He cannot be tempted. God can't be surprised. That's why we included that troubled line. His soul was able to be troubled because God can't be surprised by anything. He knows everything all the time. He was sorrowful, meaning he was sad. God um, isn't necessary. He's, God can be sad, but it's, it's different because he also accepts things. That sorrowful is like specifically, I think... That one, I'm trying to remember which one that one was. That Matthew 26, 28. Uh, I don't know what that Matthew 26, 28, what passage that's supposed to be. <laughs> but the rest of these, he marveled. Um, that marveled is he's surprised. Um, that one is specifically in regards to um, the faith of the centurion. He wept with sorrow. That was when he heard about the death of Lazarus, he's wept and he was sad about it, meaning he was, he was given news and he was sad by the news. God obviously doesn't, can't receive news because he knows all, all the time. And he learned obedience through suffering. That's in Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Learning something specifically is not an attribute of God. And this learning obedience wasn't necessarily that he sinned and needed correction, but that he grew and learned obedience, meaning maturity and meaning responsibility. He grew his character and moral aptitude, moral fortitude for things. He was tempted, which being tempted is a human thing. God cannot be tempted with evil. That's in James 1.13. So the fact that he was able to be tempted, which we know 
obviously from the gospel accounts, shows us that he was indeed human in this way. I'm going to leave that up there while I talk about the next points, just in case anyone wants to copy those down. Finally, the people around Jesus saw him as a human. They did not see him as a God-man, a superhuman, and he didn't just appear out of nowhere. Only Mary, perhaps, had an inkling of what Jesus was able to do. Even though Jesus had begun his ministry and was healing and preaching, the men of his hometown were surprised at him, right? So that comes from Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So in that aspect, he was a totally normal person so that the people around him even his family, John 7, 5 tells us that, saw him as a normal and ordinary man. Nothing special, nothing great. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who wrote Systematic Theology, puts it, was Jesus fully human? He was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even those brothers who grew up in his own household, did not realize that he was anything more than another very good human being. They apparently had no idea that he was God come in the flesh, which that lines up not only with, with uh, this idea that he was fully human, lines up with prophecy. In Isaiah, it says he is not someone who should be desired. Nothing about him is special. He is, he is not a kingly figure like David. He is something else. He is a servant. So, 2638. Yes, so that, yeah, Matt, yeah, that's, thank you. Matthew 2638. So this passage here, um, he was sorrowful, Matthew 2638. And that was when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was right before he was about to be crucified and taken to trial. He was sorrowful, even to death, which some, um, yeah, I won't get into that. <laughs> but to the point where if he was more, like, it was hurt so bad that he, was, he would die from it potentially. Any questions? Any thoughts? What? Yes. Well, and that, that one, when he prayed, he bled out of his eyes. In, in fact, in uh, Hebrews 5, 7, there's a really fun way. Well, it's not fun. It's an interesting way that the author of Hebrews portrays his prayer. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, right? So 
Yeah, he had lots of emotion in his prayers. There was nothing that, that's clearly a very human aspect of Jesus' life. Yeah, this was the Jesus was seen as a human. The neighbors, the community around him saw him as a human. They didn't see him as anything special. And it also shows that he didn't just appear on the scene. He was somebody who was known. And I have a feeling that after their little incident in Jerusalem, Mary got back and said, you're not going to teach like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's right, after his, which I believe, so she said after his resurrection he wasn't even recognized. I believe there was sort of a veil, which we see that with the, with the travelers on the road to Emmaus. All of a sudden, he, it's like he flips a switch, and then they're like, oh, Jesus is here. Potentially, the stuff that had happened to him, uh, the scars, you mean? Yeah. So that is one idea that some people have because the way that it's described how Jesus was tortured, would he, he would have had heavy scars all over his body, including his face. So some people theorize that, yeah, we get to heaven, he's going to have all the scars, not just the ones in his hands and feet and his side. He will have all the scars. But that's not a... That's not... Outside of what we see there where the scars, he has them, they remain... Um, in his hands and feet. We don't know about the others, but yeah, that is a big, that's a possibility that he'll have the ones on his face, his back, all those. Mm -hmm. He will still have them. Yeah. Yep, he's, he's in the spirit realm just hanging out, human, <laughs> fully man. That hasn't changed, which he's preparing a place, so he's According to what we can say, he's building a place for us there, right? That's, that's, that's what it says he's doing. I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah, a place where we can live in heaven in the spirit realm. <laughs> that's right. All right. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for you, the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son to die for us, for sending your son in such an amazing and beautiful way. We pray that you'd be with us this week. Bless us in Jesus' name, amen.